Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Elon Musk accused Apple of censorship yesterday and claimed it had threatened to block Twitter from its app store. The apparent feud comes as the social media platform deals with an advertiser exodus, mass layoffs and resignations that have gutted content moderation and other key teams. We take stock of the last month at Twitter and want to hear from you. Has your experience on the platform changed? That is, of course, if you stayed. If you left, why? And where did you go? Tell us after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. In the months since Elon Musk took over Twitter, we've seen mass layoffs, then mass resignations, high-profile firings, the reinstatement of Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene's accounts, a chaotic blue checkmark payment scheme, and prank accounts that were able to spook the stock market. But we've also seen acknowledgement of the platform's value and role it plays in people's lives. So are you staying on Twitter, or did you already leave? Here to help us take stock of the last month is Shira Ovide. She writes the Tech Friend newsletter for The Washington Post. Shira, so glad to have you on. Really glad to be here. Thank you. And Mike Isaac is with us, technology correspondent for The New York Times. Mike, also glad to have you as well. Hey, thanks for having me. It's hard to know where to start with all the news coming from Twitter these days. <laughs> but I guess um, the best place to start is at the beginning at the latest, really, at what just happened yesterday, which is this public fight that Elon Musk started picking with Apple. Can you first, Michael, explain what that's all about? Yeah, it's um, <laughs> so it gets into the weeds that uh, is actually a larger fight between a number of different companies and Apple. But basically, it started with uh, over the past, let's say, few weeks, um, Apple is one of Twitter's biggest advertisers. And they started scaling back on their advertising, um, which is a problem for Elon, considering he's uh, over the past few months kind of decimated their revenue base. And so uh, instead of having maybe like a nice sit down with Tim Cook or Phil Schiller um, or any other Apple executives, he decided to do what he does, which is put them on blast on, on Twitter, on his Twitter account, which is kind of Elon's way of negotiating. And, uh, you know... I have my own feelings about how he's handling it, but basically his idea is, you know, call out advertisers who uh, 
what he thinks are are not sort of supporting free speech on the platform and and um and get them to basically spend money there again which is i don't know i think with we're going up against apple is pretty um uh gutsy and i don't know if it's going to work but that's how he's sort of playing this sort of way to get them back into spending money on the platform. And you said you have your own feelings about it. So is that what you mean by your own feelings about it? <laughs> I just don't think it's smart. I don't think it's, um, that's how Apple really plays ball. I think they develop long-term relationships with companies. I think they also are very powerful. They, you know, over a trillion dollar market cap at some point, at least, I'm not sure if it's today. And, um, and Tim Cook doesn't like being called out like that, especially with other companies who have done that with, um, let's say Facebook has sort of criticized Apple for their um, ad tracking uh, software that they've sort of put out in the past few years and Spotify and uh, Epic Games, which make Fortnite. They have particularly homed in on Apple's 30% app store tax. And that's really the the heart also of what Elon is getting to uh. here because what he's trying to do with their new business model is subscription revenue moving away from advertising in the long term. And so they don't want to pay the Apple tax. Yeah. Well, we can get into the app store stuff in just a second. But um, Shira, in in terms of, yes, how important Apple spending is on Twitter, I think I saw in a Washington Post piece that they accounted for more than 4% of Twitter's revenue in one of the recent quarters. Can you just speak to the kind of financial pressures that Elon Musk is facing. What are the issues with Twitter and its revenue and profitability right now? Yeah, I think to me, that's really the the essential backdrop of anything that Musk says or does is the, the really precarious financial position that Twitter is in as a result of Musk's takeover. The company borrowed something like $13 billion in order to finance Musk's takeover. Musk himself, along with some of his um, allies, put in uh, tens of billions of dollars more money, their own money, to, again, finance the takeover of of Twitter. Twitter is going to have to pay a billion dollars or so every single year just on the interest payments, on the debt, that Twitter borrowed. And so the the reality is that Musk needs to bring in a lot more revenue, cut a lot more expenses, or both in order to make the math work. Mm. And that's everything you're seeing has to be understood in that financial context. Including that attempt to charge people $8 a month to get the verified blue checkmark, right, Shira? Yeah, I mean, uh, Twitter makes nearly all of its revenue from advertising right now, and Twitter has never been a particularly large advertising business, certainly in the context of Facebook at, or and Google. Um, and so Musk, part of his strategy was to diversify the revenue streams at Twitter, and subscriptions are one way of doing that. And as Mike pointed out, right, yep. anytime you take revenue, take payments from people in an app like Twitter, you're going to hand over a portion of that to Apple or Google, and that's less money for Musk and Twitter. So just to go back now, Michael, we realize that you know Elon Musk has has a lot that he needs to do to try to deal with its financial challenges, with Twitter's financial challenges. Mm. And you mentioned that one of the ways he's trying to get Apple to play ball is by basically, it sounds like, stoking these concerns <laughs> that that a lot of companies have had about Apple's market 
power, a lot of that lying in the app store. Can you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, totally. And, you know, it's I criticize Elon's sort of public um, uh, prodding of Apple, particularly because Apple doesn't really like it. But at the same time, you know, some of the concerns he has are are real concerns that other developers have. And so um, what they call the App Store tax is basically from the inception of Apple's App Store, they've asked outside developers who want to sell their apps through the App Store to pay a 30% tax. And that's been Apple's cut uh, from the beginning. It's been a very uh, profitable business for them or, or you know, a, a significant line of revenue and, and increasing in the last few years and becoming more important to them as they move more into um, software and services uh, rather than only hardware as the main driver. And, uh, you know, over the past few years, a number of developers, particular companies like Spotify or Epic Games, um, again, the Fortnite makers, they basically said, this is too much money. <laughs> you're you're taking a large cut of our profit, of our revenues, and we don't really have, you know, you're one of the main distribution mechanisms for how people get their apps, you know, and a lot of people use Spotify on their iPhone rather than, let's say, Android or the desktop. And we should be able to either link to our uh, own payment mechanisms or not at least have to pay so much just to get people to download this thing uh, if they're going to do a subscription. And so that's the backdrop. And I think there's there are people who would agree with Elon here. He's basically bringing up an argument that was that has gone to court in different contexts uh, over the past few years and I think is raising it again. And what I'm curious about is, if he'll get other developers on board with him uh, to sort of join the fight, despite him being this, you know, impulsive mercurial CEO who just kind of likes to fire off tweets and, and poke the beast every now and then. But ultimately to join the fight so that he can get Apple to give Twitter more money. Sure. I don't know. I guess the question is, will that work? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a gamble. And, and this is the, the other part of it too is, um, you know, he faces the threat of being removed from the app store if he um, goes all the way into this mode of, again, what he calls this sort of uh, maximalist free speech, um, minimal content moderation, trying to cut down on how much, uh, how many sort of moderators are, are are removing stuff from the platform. And he's erring on the side of more speech is good, uh, which is a whole other argument because of how, you know, it's sort of hate speech and disinformation have proliferated over the past few years. So that's the risk he's also running. So then it really underscores Apple's power potentially to be able to rein in hate speech and terrible other kinds of speech on yeah. the Twitter platform. I am curious, Shira Ovidi, if you could just help us understand how much of an increase we have seen in the last month? There have been some reports of that. Yeah, I, I want to be careful here because you're right. There has been some um, research and reporting, including from my Washington Post colleagues, about an increase in in hate speech, people using, you know, explicitly racist language or things like Nazi symbolism, Nazi symbols in the immediate aftermath of Musk's takeover. Um, I think it's clear from what Musk and other Twitter executives have said that they have been much more careful at times since then. Uh, and Musk sort of tweeted a slide that, you know, it was impossible to verify basically uh, talking about 
the prevalence or the decrease in prevalence of explicitly hateful language on Twitter. And I, you know, the reason I am a little bit careful about this is I think anybody who's been on the internet um, knows that people say terrible things on the internet, whether Musk owns the platform or not. Mm. And, um, you know, I think it's important to remember that Twitter and other social networks were not exactly the kindest places in the world <laughs> before must own them. And that's still <laughs> true. So it's hard to say if something that you particularly find vile or stupid on Twitter is related to Musk's ownership or just Twitter being Twitter and people being people. Well, let me, I mean, you're right. <laughs> there was toxic stuff on Twitter before Musk took over. Let me ask our listeners, maybe they can give us some insights. I'm curious, listeners, if your experience on the platform has changed, that is if you decided to stay on it. Uh, you can tell us about that. And you can also tell us if you've decided to stay on why. If you've left, what made you leave and where did you go? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter, if you're still there, or Instagram <laughs> as well. We're at KQED Forum. Mike, have you noticed anything different or anything that has changed in the last month, say maybe even technologically or functionality changing? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think um, so a few weeks back um, when Musk did the big sort of cuts and, and you know, first cut the company in half and then uh, started doing rolling layoffs, depending on who wanted to stay. There was a lot of concern internally just on how much engineering talent was going out the door, how much institutional knowledge of how Twitter basically functions. And the big concern was, is this site going to break down, you know, if not immediately, then over time. And I, I have seen just personally and I've seen some reports of slow sort of bugs or fun functionality problems over time. And I'm curious, basically, if he can operate the company at the same way uh, with fewer people, which is his goal. But mm. I don't know. We'll see. Well, let's talk about his uh, management style after the break. We have Mike Isaac of the New York Times with us and Shira Ovede of the Washington Post. And we have you, our listeners. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we are talking about tomorrow. 
Uh, tomorrow, we will be talking with you listeners and hearing from you about how you are making sense of and reacting to the killing of five people at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado. It was horrific, but for many, they say predictable. The Human Rights Campaign declared 2021 the deadliest year on record for transgender and non-binary people. If you're LGBTQ+, plus or love someone who is, share your thoughts in an email or voicemail at 415-553-3300. This hour, we're talking with Mike Isaac and Shira Ovide about Elon Musk's first month at Twitter. And we're hearing from you now about whether or not you've left the platform, you uh, want to stay on the platform, and why, what your experience has been like. A listener tweets, I'm staying to tweet anti-libertarian memes. Uh, another listener, Jesse, writes, I use Twitter only to vent or rant. I do not need it nor depend on any social media for my facts or on any topic, although it does leave me to do my research to know the truth. Mike, before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the changes at Twitter, mass layoffs uh, and resignations. We saw some high profile firings and in like the trust and security areas as well as in engineering. Um, Can you talk a little bit about whether this is showing some part of Musk that is realizing, oh, maybe I bit off more than I can chew, or if this is actually a very calculated management style? Uh, I want to say a little bit of both. Um, I, you know, one of my colleagues wrote a story this uh, a few weeks ago, basically saying this is part of how he manages companies. You know, he um, he obviously runs Tesla, SpaceX and uh, the boring company, the tunnel, uh, the tunneling company that's supposed to go under cities. And, you know, one of his big things is is sort of come in hard, fire all the uh, what he thinks is dead weight and really recruit acolytes and true believers in the Elon Musk mission in Elon Musk, the man, honestly. And uh, he's doing the exact same thing at Twitter. That's the playbook. And also cost cutting like he just to share his point earlier, like he owes a lot of money and spent a lot of money at the worst possible time before the economy tanked. Uh, to buy this company. So he always cuts costs when coming into these businesses, but I think even more so uh, with Twitter. And so, you know, his idea is, okay, come in, run it like I do um, SpaceX, get get my people in, get my guys in, which are mostly guys, to come in and review. He does these code reviews, basically his way of judging how productive people are by uh, seeing how many, how much, and what type of code they've written over the past week or so, and a lot of folks feel that that's kind of an arbitrary and weird judge of how to keep people. But I think at the same time, the the TBD is: can you run this company effectively with a fraction of the workforce that you used to, and a bunch of new people, uh, especially when you're not getting folks uh, replacing them as quickly, and people who have been there for years and have the relationships with, let's say, ad companies outside. Uh, to keep it going. And I think that's still, you know, we're in our first uh, month or two, so we can still give it a little time to to figure it out. Mm. Shira, there is a camp of Musk supporters who who point to the fact that he's had successes with long odds, like at Tesla and, and SpaceX. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, that's always the, that's always the context of anything that Musk does, right? Is that he has been, arguably wildly successful with those two companies that you mentioned, uh, SpaceX and Tesla. Um, And the, you know, certainly the, 
he has an uphill climb to with Twitter. I think, again, it's important to know that Twitter is almost 17 years old. It's never been wildly financially successful in that entire history. It's mm. never been very popular, at least, again, by the sort of standards of Facebook and, and YouTube and other sites with a billion plus users. Um, and Musk is the person who is saying, after all these repeated failures over 17 years, to make Twitter live up to the potential that its founders and backers always claimed it has and never fulfilled, uh, that Musk is the man to do that. And maybe he can, given his track record, and maybe he can't. Well, uh, this listener <laughs> writes, I've decided to stay, but my Twitter feed has been turning into a cesspool over the past couple of weeks. Why can't the ex-tweeps develop a new Musk-free platform? There's nothing extraordinarily <laughs> proprietary about Twitter, is there? Has your experience of the, the platform in terms of the cesspool that they are talking about changed. I'm thinking in the context, uh, Shira, of the reinstatement of accounts like Marjorie Taylor Greene's and, of course, Donald Trump's, which was a uh, a big moment. And Susan writes today in The New York Times, Michelle Goldberg writes that Elon Musk is welcoming Trump and Kanye West back onto the platform at a time when anti-Semitism is moving into the mainstream of our society. I'd like to hear more discussion on this thread and how Twitter users are responding. So I'm wondering uh, what what your thoughts are on that and the effect that it it has had, if it has one. So yeah, far. we'll see. I, I think that's I think that's really the the thing to pay attention to. And I just want to point out a couple things that didn't happen in the United States, but I think are really um, important and potentially disturbing milestones. So over the weekend, there was a recurrence of terrorist videos from the Christchurch, New Zealand murders mm. of a number of years ago. And if you recall at the time, that was this moment where video, live video of the shooting and, and, and uploaded video of those shootings um, kind of flooded social media and Facebook and, and other sites had a hard time keeping it down. And um, over the weekend, there was a recurrence of those Christchurch mm. terrorist videos. And it's reasonable to ask, is was that a result of Twitter having kind of a shell of its former workforce and not being able to play this terrible game of whack-a-mole with people who want to post terrorist videos on the internet? Mm. And the other reporting from my colleague, Joe Men was about... Um, people who were searching in, in Mandarin for videos and other information of these protests happening in China over uh, zero COVID policies and, and other government actions. And there was all this crude pornographic spam flooding mm. those searches, which again, my colleague reported, was partly the result of Twitter not having the manpower to sort of prevent essentially propaganda from flooding people who were searching legitimately for these citizen protests. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think those are small maybe examples, uh, not, you know, of the high profile of, of Donald Trump, but those are small examples of changes that Musk has made to the Twitter workforce that have resulted in, you know, arguably bad outcomes for freedom and for users of Twitter. God help you if you mention any sort of crypto uh, word when you're tweeting, because you will automatically get a flood of crypto spam in your mentions, just FYI. 
Hmm. Well, this listener writes, I've noticed changes in the ads delivered to my Twitter feed. Before Musk bought Twitter, I would see name brand ads for airlines, clothing brands, and cooking or food brands. Now it's a mishmash of random advertising touting weird crypto companies and clothes <laughs> I'd never wear, like alligator-themed socks. We're talking with Mike Isaac, technology correspondent for the New York Times, also the author of Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Shira Ovide is also with us, who writes the Tech Friend newsletter for the Washington Post. And you, our listeners, are sharing your experiences on the platform as well. If you're staying, why? If you are leaving, why? Or if you already left where you went, you can email forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786. You can post on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are still there at KQED forum. Let me go to caller Paul in San Mateo. Hi, Paul. Hi. Uh, Long-time listener for KQED. Um, I should say I am not a follower of Musk or um, actually I have a Twitter account, but I never use it uh, except for uh, reading occasional links from news. Um, I am, though, surprised at the coverage that uh, everybody is looking for. It seems to me like a little bit of a witch hunt that's going on with Elon Musk. He certainly has his quirks, but I'm I'm more and more going despondent with uh, why NPR is uh, not giving a fair shake, you know, and it seems to have moved off very far from the center. Um, it's like you're looking for things rather than looking to present a fair and balanced opinion. You know, I, I I, well, you know, I don't know what, what's going on over here. Okay, well, Paul, thanks for sharing your opinion and your feedback. I might quibble with the coverage. I, I don't think that we have been not giving Elon Musk a fair shake. Uh, and I do, though, want to say that there is definitely a group of people who feel that Elon Musk's uh, desire uh, for free speech and honoring free speech is genuine, uh, Mm. Mike. But I do remember when Donald Trump was banned from the account that the idea wasn't so much that that Twitter is not uh, into free speech, but that Twitter does have control over reach. Like people have freedom of speech, but they don't have freedom of reach, which I guess is basically... One of the questions for for Elon Musk, in my view, right? Uh, sure. <laughs> how sure. genuine is your is your view of free speech, uh, and how do you reconcile that with whether people should have free reach? Sure. No. Well, I think there's a few things. One, I think um, just to the listeners' um, point is that I, I don't think he's alone. I think there are a lot of folks who feel similarly, or that you know the criticism of uh, the company or that Musk is too intense, I would probably push back on that a little bit and just say, look, we, we're we getting, <laughs> I, my colleagues and I are getting, you know, dozens of tips from employees every day who are telling us just sort of, sort of how chaotic it is inside. And I think when you go into a company and fire half the staff immediately, it's going to be chaotic. And I think he kind of knew that. I think there are people on his team who are probably surprised that how uh, disruptive it has has been already but um again like just to the guys uh, to the listeners point like it's still a we, we can see because these are early days so i think we can um uh, you know and, i mean personally i want must to succeed because i like twitter <laughs> for all its faults like i'm on it a lot and i i owe a lot to to it and my job and and my career so like i i don't think 
the idea is that we're rooting for Twitter to fail. I think it's more, what are the issues when you do a, uh, you know, what what was essentially a hostile takeover of a company and and reshape it radically in a very short amount of time. Um, just your point on free speech. I think that this was a this came up yesterday just in the Apple stuff and and sort of uh, Elon um, pushing back on them and saying, "Don't you want free speech?" It's funny because some of his immediate uh, moves actually kind of mirror Facebook and their solutions to problems, which were exactly what you said. You know, folks should be able to speak on the platform, but algorithmically, if it's considered, you know, damaging or hateful or, or, you know, widely reported by folks, it might be shoved lower in people's feeds and not maybe suggested as uh as tweets as often at least that's the policy that he's sort of espousing i don't know technologically how it's uh going so far everyone's feeds are kind of personal and and on their own but that's kind of the move they're taking right now and i still feel like he's feel, feeling it out as he goes along basically do you think that's a move that that users are also taking right now especially the ones who have left with regard to saying you know what i reject I reject these algorithms, these traditional algorithms of the past, right? And I want to now go into groups where I have a little bit more control over who I'm talking to and and what I'm I'm talking about, Shira. Yeah, I mean, I think even even before this year, we have seen something of a of a crisis, an end of an of the original era of social media as conceived in the 2000s and a kind of splintering of where people spend their time in these other uh, more private or at least smaller spaces, right? And, and you know, Discord, the sort of audio chat app is part of that. And um, so are lots of these uh, newer apps on the right, like uh, Trump's Truth Social, right? It's less about let's all go to one place and hear the world's uh, voices and share our own and more about let's gather with people who share our our interests or or ideas and that might be people who like knitting and want to be in a discord knitting group or want to be in a facebook group for knitters and it might be people who feel like there's no place for them on um, more mainstream social networks like Facebook and Twitter and want to be on, on Parler. Sure, you've written about there potentially never being an inter- internet space quite like Twitter again. What do you think we stand to lose if that's the case? Maybe I'm just feeling a little bit nostalgic um, because, hmm. you know, I-, I have been on social media for a long time and like Mike, right, I was relatively early to Twitter and relatively early writing about Twitter. And, you know, I think we've seen this erosion of what was always a semi-fictional dream, but a lovely dream, nevertheless, of, you know, Twitter, as as Musk has has, uh, called it again, uh, you know, sort of town square, a place where it might be noisy and chaotic, but it's a place where people share their truth. And, and we've seen that in positive, powerful ways, right? That Darnella Fraser, the teenager, the then teenager in Minneapolis, her Facebook video showed the murder of George Floyd at a time when, you know, the police were saying this was uh, kind of 
something else, right? And you know, we've seen the protesters in Iran using social media to share what they believe in, uh, and the, the government is trying to suppress right their their fights for freedom. So there are ways we've seen where Twitter as this voice for everyone, a place where we can all see what what we're saying and believing, you know, that has been very powerful. And on the flip side, we've also seen the horrors of that same belief, right? Where again, a terrorist video from Christchurch can spread around the world at the at the tap of, a, of an app. Um, and so we've seen both the good and bad of that dream of connecting the world through social media. Yeah, we've seen the good and bad. And uh, Mike, I'm curious if this is the collapse of, of sort of the biggest media platform like this. Um, mm. I, we, of course, have had social media platforms go away, but is Twitter basically the biggest uh, that has these threats of of it potentially breaking <laughs> like to the point mm. where we could try to log on one day and we're like, Oh my God, it's vanished. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's so funny because Twitter is uh, at the same time, one of the most influential social networks that there is. And also incredibly niche in that most people only use it, you know, maybe most people who are on it, which is again, a fraction of people who are on Facebook or other apps, uh, only maybe use it one or two times a week, if that, and uh, don't tweet and just sort of passively consume. And then the insane people like me and Shira who are on it all the time are the ones who post and like sort of use it actively daily. So like it's it's both a niche network and incredibly influential, especially in media. Um, I, I My thoughts about, you know, social networks, barring any extreme technological problems, like say all the servers go offline or something crazy happens, I think social networks take a little bit longer to die rather than completely leave overnight. You know, um, uh, the ramp up for popular social networks can be very fast, but I mean, Tumblr, if you remember, Tumblr is still alive and kicking and has communities on it, even though it was, is it is a ghost of what it once was back in the heyday when, when Yahoo bought it for a billion dollars or more. And um, even like, you know, Foursquare or just apps that were hot at one point are still around, but I think it takes a time to die. So I don't think Twitter is going away immediately, even if it is on the uh, twilight of its of its existence. We're talking about Twitter taking stock of its last month under Elon Musk, and we'll have more after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about Twitter this hour and what's happened in the months since Elon Musk took control. Twitter has been reeling from mass layoffs and resignations, tech problems, and an exodus of advertisers. We're talking with Shira Ovide, who writes the Tech Friend newsletter for The Washington Post, and Mike Isaac, the technology correspondent for The New York Times. And we're talking with you, our listeners. Are you staying on Twitter? Why? Has your experience on the platform changed? How? If you've left, what made you leave? And where did you go? Email forum at kqed.org. Call us at 866-733-6786 or post your thoughts on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Let me read a a few of the comments that we have coming in. We've had quite a few already. Uh, So Daniel writes, I have stayed on Twitter, mostly because I have grown dependent on it for networking with other people in my field and for interesting perspectives on current news stories. But I am running out of patience with how Musk runs this app and will likely leave soon. Can it just crash? That would be the easiest way to leave. We addressed that a little bit before the break. Gladina tweets, The immigrant diaspora community I found during the pandemic is still active, including news from other activists. But I'm close to leaving since there are other platforms to connect. Susan writes, I love Twitter. Before Musk, I followed smart, talented journalists and thought leaders. Where else could I get Lawrence Tribe's opinion on breaking news? But I've deleted my account now. Steve writes, I have signed up for Mastodon, but I don't like how decentralized it is. I am also on Hive Social, which is similar to Twitter, but is slow and has no web interface. I want to leave Twitter because of the things Musk has done, but I don't see a viable alternative yet. Well, let's talk a little bit about viable alternatives. Um, One alternative being proposed widely online is Mastodon. Uh, Mike, is this likely to be a successful Twitter substitute? (laughs) Um, It's really funny. I feel like the the analogy is like uh, one nightclub closing and then like a mass of people trying to get into another one at the same time. And it just doesn't work. Um, Mastodon is not a good one-to-one comparison to Twitter just because exactly what the listener was saying it's decentralized it's sort of more complicated to set up it's you have to sort of pick a server to be on and the founder of it basically has said this is intentional you know he doesn't want to make a twitter clone he wants to sort of be more uh, methodical and curated about it but i think folks who are expecting uh the same thing on just a different uh, in a different place are going to be pretty shocked there are um, other little uh, upstarts sort of going around. Like you said, Hive was one of them. Um, uh, there's one called Post, I think it's called. And uh, an ex, uh, uh, another sort of serial entrepreneur starting that up. Um, but, I, you know, like folks are sort of looking around and it's hard to, it's hard to replace Twitter because just kind of what Shira was saying, there's, there's really nothing like it. Last night, I dove into a thread about like cashmere sweaters and how you can t- determine like the quality of a good cashmere sweater. And I just don't find that sort of thing on Facebook or, or Instagram. And and it's really delightful in a way that, you know, as much like negative stuff that we think about when, when it comes to social media, there are some really nice highlights. And I haven't found that yet on, on other platforms. Hmm. Shira, are there other platforms that you're already on? Uh, or that uh, you are moving to to fill the void? Uh, not that you have a void, because I know you're still on Twitter, though I, I understand both you and Mike are kind of <laughs> in wait and see mode. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> anything you'd mention, Shira? Uh, no, I think, as Mike said, I too have uh, signed up for a Mastodon account in the last few weeks and don't really know what to do with it. So it's just kind of parked there unused. I think, you know, I get that people are in this exploration phase, uh, or many people might be interested in this exploration phase. 
And I totally get that. And I think uh, Mike also said that Mastodon and I think most of these other alternatives to Twitter that are being talked about are not exactly one-to-one replacements. And I think, you know, if people want to use Twitter less, I think, you know, it's reasonable for people to ask themselves, well, what do I get from Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. If it's using Twitter as a place to kind of surface news and interesting ideas, right? Maybe an alternative is to use LinkedIn more or to use, you know, kind of a newsreader to collect a bunch of news articles and and newsletters that people like. Uh, If people are there for community, then there are lots of other communities that, again, may not be exactly like the communities that people might have spent years and years building on Twitter, but there are, you know, group text chats to be more, to be analog about it. There are things on, you know, Facebook groups and Snapchat and and Tumblr and Twitch and these other places, YouTube, these other places where communities of interest form. So even if there's not something that is going to be the next exactly like Twitter, there are things that are replacements for certain activities that people do on Twitter, maybe. Yeah, well... Adriana tweets, I have kept my Twitter account for communication with entities such as KQED, municipal debts, and customer service reps of merchants I use. But for the actual social in social media, I have switched to counter social, much more civil than Twitter. Mm. It's interesting, Shira, it makes me wonder, is this moment a catalyst for change in the way people use social media, do you think? Well, I I think, um, as I said earlier, I think people already have been using social media differently, right? Uh, You know, to me, the fascinating thing about the rise of TikTok in the United States and other countries is that it kind of subverts the whole idea of a social network, right? The, The big idea behind TikTok is you don't need any friends, that these are basically computers at TikTok that will discern what you like based on your habits and other things that it gleans from your activity. And it will show you entertainment and information tailor-made to what you seem to like, right? And you don't actually need to have a virtual or real network of of humans. You just need these computers to show you things that you like. And, And, you know, you might say that's like antisocial and maybe it is, but it is also, again, a, a kind of, it upends the model of a social network as a place where the whole experience is dictated by who you're connected to. Mm. Yeah. Interestingly, Mike, I haven't noticed a big change in my experience on the platform in the last month. And I think it's in part because I can curate who I follow, right? <laughs> the people I follow, yeah. if there are parody accounts or terrible things happening, it's in, it's contextualized when they're sharing it <laughs> so mm. that I know it's not something that's real. People can um, really put some, some restrictions on who can comment and post on their own feeds and so on, right? I, I don't know. Yeah. Otto, for example, has had very different experience than I. Otto tweets, the change now is that my feed definitely has less content. Also, I have less engagement on my own tweets, like 70% hmm. less. Instead of 33 engagements, I get eight, for example. But but for me so far, it's been pretty hard to hard to notice. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult. I, um, I like to, I think media, folks in media have a very specific experience on the platform and like follow certain accounts. I I try to figure out um, what 
quote unquote normal people, meaning people who are not necessarily hyper attuned to the news all the time, you know, what they're looking at and what their sort of experience is. And some folks, um, some folks sign up for, you know, particular niche groups or whatever, exactly what Shira was saying before, you know, if you like, um, having a sewing circle, knitting circle, I'm sorry, uh, uh, and sort of like talking to folks about a specific thing or, you know, film Twitter, um, sports Twitter, like there's all sorts of like niche Twitters uh, that exist that people sign up for. And yeah, look, I, I think it's, the, the problem is like, it's hard to know exactly how much the site has changed outside of your individual experience because, uh, especially because Twitter is now a private company, we have very little insight into what's going on outside of uh, basically the reporting that, you know, that my colleagues in the media are doing on this whole thing. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what has changed and have the, uh, the sort of cuts materially affected how this service operates. And I think folks are are noticing some of that on the periphery. Again, spam seems to be just a nightmare for, for a lot of folks right now. But um, I'm curious if if once he gets his sort of bearings, if he's going to make significant product changes uh, over time. And we're still early days uh, in that. Yeah. This listener tweets, I'm wondering if Elon's Twitter takeover has resulted in decreased engagement on Parler, Gab, Truth Social, Getter, or if it just provides another option for people to spread hate speech and disinformation. Mm. I'll read a couple of other reactions that we've gotten because we've gotten quite a few. Antoine writes, I had to write in after hearing the caller claiming that the media has an anti-Elon Musk bias. <laughs> I've been in the opposite camp for years. Most people have been blindly worshiping him as some kind of genius, including most of the media, which in fact, he is nothing of the sort. He is certainly very good at being in the right place at the right time and taking credit for things that he only had a minor part in. But if you actually take the time to dig into the facts, you'll find that his record of success is a lot more spotty than most people assume. The situation mm. with Twitter feels like a long overdue vindication for me, although we still have people like the prior caller who are blinded by their admiration for Musk that they cannot even see the clear and obvious facts in front of them now as he destroys this company with his ego and incompetence. <laughs> Shannon writes, just in the last two days, Tell Elon Musk... really feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Elon <laughs> Musk uh, has cut half of the Twitter team devoted to tackling child sexual exploitation. After saying mm. removing child exploitation is priority number one, it also ditched its COVID misinformation policy. These have deadly consequences, sadly. Hate speech and robots have increased and Elon's support Elon supports and seems to condone it from the tweets and responses I've seen from him. Also very childish, creating chaos is a major tool and rule of fascists. I find Elon at this time extremely dangerous. Um, Mike, I don't know if you had some reactions to that or if you want to comment on. Mm. I do think there has been a change uh, in the way that the broader public understands Elon Musk. Sure. I no, I totally and I, I was joking with the other caller uh, saying, tell me how you really feel. But I do I do think that this is something I've been thinking a lot about. There is a sort of mythos and cult uh, and aura of muskness that has existed for years, um, uh, particularly because he was not as active on Twitter back in the day, you know, and you can sort of there's a myth making that happens around some of these figures when um let's say there's a the biography of him sold incredibly well um he's doing these events where he has these high flying ideas and i think frankly a lot of people in tech wanted a successor to steve jobs after he passed away particularly because steve jobs was that sort of dreamer figure 
And so now in the past few years, we have uh, Musk uh, tweeting up a storm and and sort of giving his unfiltered thoughts to the public. And, you know, I think it's just the, the question I've been asking is like, does his um, sort of, you know, the persona of Elon Musk really survive through this uh, period where he's becoming uh, more open and vocal about his his uh, let's say his political thoughts or his thoughts on, you know, how speech should and discourse should occur and I'm already seeing some folks like saying I'm trading in my Tesla or I'm, in, you know, I, I believe in his mission of, you know, uh, climate sort of helping, you know, preserve the planet. But at the same time, his politics are odious to me. So I, I'm conflicted. So I don't think those discussions were happening a few years back. And now those are definitely at least on some people's minds that I've that I've spoken to. Mike Isaac is technology correspondent for the New York Times, also the author of Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Shira Ovide writes the Tech Friend newsletter for the Washington Post. We are talking about Twitter, taking stock of what's happened in the last month since Elon Musk took over, and hearing from you, our listeners, how you're taking it in. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me read a couple more comments. Marjorie writes, I don't have a Twitter account, but I do appreciate using it to check in from time to time with what certain journalists, news outlets, and academics that I trust are posting. If Twitter changes from an open billboard into requiring subscription for me to take a look, I wouldn't subscribe. If the journalists and academics leave in significant numbers, I'd love to know where they go and hope it's to a platform that allows check-in without a fee. Thanks for this conversation. Another listener tweets, your guest mentioned Discord or Facebook groups. The advantage of Twitter is that they are all in the same place. I use the mute and block functions. I follow people, not organizations, and think before I tweet. So it sounds like this person is staying and being careful and seeing and appreciating some of the functions that Twitter has. Shira, Mike mentioned that he sees whatever... Uh, Break down potentially of Twitter not not being something immediate. It'll be a long, uh, slow thing, or maybe it will last in in some form. That's a lot less of what it currently is. Where do you see us going next? Where do With you see Twitter, Twitter you going mean, next? Or, yeah, yeah, I mean, I I think this look. This is going to be a really unpredictable period for Twitter mm -hmm. and for really other internet sites that we've come to think of as a given in our lives. I, I think to the point about um, where Musk takes Twitter, it, it's going to be, it feels like it's going to be either a hit or miss proposition with um, a, unlikely a middle ground, right? That either he's going to have to make the, the finances of Twitter work by dramatically increasing usage and revenue of Twitter and making it a more profitable company, or he's going to fail to do that. And Twitter, you know, could be left a husk of it of its former self. It feels like there's no um kind of room for some kind of middle ground outcome for Twitter. And I again to the point of broader than Twitter, we are in this moment where there's a little bit of a crisis for the internet's the internet sites that we've come to expect in our lives that you know facebook is in this moment too where it is worried about its future it's trying to become a little bit more like tiktok in again kind of downplaying the prevalence of you know your friend connections being responsible for the kinds of things that you see on facebook and instagram it's very clear that mark zuckerberg is serious about his pivot to the metaverse, trying to make that the next phase for his company, because 
he sees, you know, a potential end date maybe for Facebook and Instagram that, that again, we've come to, we've come to see as part of our lives. And, you know, I think it's worth saying that this, we have had this whole generation of social media companies, not a lot of them have been, you know, remarkable, financially successful outside of, arguably outside of Facebook. Even YouTube is a little bit of a question mark inside of Google. You know, Snapchat is popular, but not wildly popular. It's not particularly financially successful and having some problems now. The market downturn in tech and some other higher risk areas like crypto are, you know, making this kind of a critical moment for what we've thought of as um, an kind of an unshakable social media landscape. So I, I think I'm really fascinated to see what changes and doesn't in the next few years with these companies that we've come to see as pillars of technology. Yeah, that is exactly how I feel. Um, watching this is is really in many ways fascinating and, and you're just hoping it won't be damaging. The listener tweets, I follow independent journalists, rabbis, Anglican and Methodist pastors, knitters, doctors, human rights lawyers, writers, and lots of other ordinary people with a wide range of snark, humor, and thoughtfulness. I have an account at Counter Social, but Twitter is still primary. Omar tweets, I'll never leave Twitter because it's the fastest way to engage and talk with new people by a simple hashtag. Shira, you mentioned earlier in the show that you've been feeling nostalgic. Do you remember what what uh, was one of the first powerful moments you had on the platform? I don't know if this yeah, boy, ago. I'm getting corny. Uh, I, I mean, I think for me, the first moment I remember was, you know, there was that plane that emergency landed on the Hudson River in New York in 2009, I believe. And the first images that emerged of people being rescued from that plane, kind of crawling out onto the airplane wing and being rescued, those came about from, you know, people tweeting from the the side of the river. And to me, that was a moment that showed, wow, really, you know, we can dot anyone with a Twitter account and a phone can document what's happening in the world faster than anyone before in human history. And, you know, again, we've seen the downsides of that too, but there is something powerful uh, about that moment, almost like a, again, invention of the printing press kind of pivotal moment in human history. Well, Shira Oveday, who writes the Tech Friend newsletter for the Washington Post, thank you. Mike Isaac, technology correspondent for the New York Times, thank you as well. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your reflections on this last month. Also, thank you, Francesca Fenzi, for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.